Welcome to Buddha at the Gas Pump. My name is Rick Archer, and I'm down in North Carolina with Francis Dale Bennett and John Mark Stroud. Welcome to you both. Thank you. <clears throat> Francis and I, I've been helping Francis uh, teach a weekend retreat down here, which has been tremendous fun. Um, I first met Francis about a year ago when he was in a monastery up in Montreal, and he emailed me and told me he was listening to the show and recounted some of his experiences, in particular a profound awakening he had had uh, some months prior to that. And he told me that he was going to be leaving the monastery, and I thought, we should do an interview. Nobody knows about this guy, but I think he'll make a very good uh, guest on this show. So about a week after he left the monastery, uh, we did the interview, and Francis's life went from relative quietude to several hundred emails a day and Skype calls and all kinds of stuff going on, um, people sending him money. Um, and uh, because, uh, in my opinion, there was something um, very fresh and kind of pure and innocent and sweet about Francis's whole presentation of this. A little bit different. Not that all my other guests aren't pure and sweet, but <laughs> there was, uh, people found it refreshing. And, and many people who had had a religious background and who had, who had perhaps become disillusioned uh, with that or as a result of that uh, found a, kind of a fresh hope and rediscovery of, of you know, some of the teachings of their religion through what Francis was saying. Um, so that's a brief synopsis of Francis, and I encourage people to go back and watch that interview. And I'll link to it from the BatGap page of this interview. And uh, I'll have Francis introduce himself a little bit more thoroughly in a minute for those who hadn't seen that interview and would like to know the backstory a little bit. Um, but I would like to also first introduce my new friend, John Mark, uh, who was recommended to me by several people who lives here in North Carolina and um, who has a very interesting story to tell. And he and Francis immediately headed off when they met each other and discovered that they were really on the same, same wavelength in terms of Jesus Christ, uh, although they've actually gone about their exploration of that um, in a little bit different way. So, John Mark, why don't you just uh, give us a, a, as much of an introduction as you'd like to give about who you are and what your path has been and how you've come to sort of be where you are spiritually speaking. Sure. Um, I had little spiritual experience in my life other than my folks were Methodist missionaries and I grew up in the Methodist church. As soon as I was 18 and out of the house, I had nothing to do with religion. I couldn't stand the born in sin, condemnation, eternal damnation. It just made no sense to me whatsoever. So I went out in the world to find my way and enjoyed great success, great success in the world and business. But I event in my mid-twenties. I was really successful in business, type A personality. You know, I got my goal. I'm going to get it. I actually got a goal of a really high professional recognition. And I was walking off the stage. And I hit the bottom step. And in an instant, I was cast into the deepest, darkest void of despair. I could, I could not even begin to explain. It didn't last long. But... I know now that it was love, God trying to say, you think all that accomplishment you've made in the world is worth something, it's meaningless. But I spent the next 15 years out in the world trying to fill that void that I had seen. Little did I know that that void was what I truly was, 
and was the home of all that really is. But I went out in the world to try and fill it because it was always lurking in the back of my mind. Finally, by 2007, I couldn't deny it any longer. I couldn't fake it that I was happy being successful in the world. So, like I had done everything else, I went all in. In my business career, when I was, I was a pilot, and I went all in. I built my own airplane. It was just kind of the personality to go all in. So I went all in and turned towards what I had been avoiding for 15 years. And as soon as I consciously made that turn, my whole life got swept up in, in what I call a tidal wave of miracles and you know, books and teachers and revelations and all kinds of things started happening. And that culminated, well it didn't really culminate, but I began to have an inner dialogue with what I thought was the Holy Spirit, kind of from Christianity. It turned out to be actually Yeshua. Who is Jesus? Jesus, Yeshua, whatever name you want to, Yeshua, whatever. He'll answer to love, whatever we call it. So I started having this dialogue, and he guided me to his channel teachings, beginning with the Course in Miracles, the Course of Love, the Way of Mastery, and current one that's out is I Am the Word. So I began to follow that inner voice. Okay, right now people are thinking, well, how do you know that inner voice was Yeshua or Jesus? How do you know it wasn't just uh, your own kind of creative imagination sure. cooking up ideas and t- speaking to you? Well, that's the $64,000 question. Whenever any of us start on a spiritual path, discernment of what's our egoic voice and what's the voice for love gets to be really, really important. And at first I didn't know. I had those same suspicions. I'm making this up. Yeah, and could there be an evo- egoic voice that's kind of superficial and a deeper voice, which is not egoic, but which is nonetheless generated from you sure. as opposed to some higher being. Yeah, a very expansive egoic attempt to impersonate love. Yeah. Um, so it was like any other relationship we have in the world. It started out light. It wasn't that there was a lot of trust there because I had those doubts. But the deeper I went, the more I trusted that voice. It was always loving it was never condemning. It was always peaceful. And it always made sure I had a choice. It never told me I had to do anything. Well, I knew pretty soon that wasn't the voice that I was used to in my own mind. Because my mind was judgmental. It was condemning. It was demanding. It was insistent. So the gentleness of it was what first started to to recognize within my own being the contrast between my egoic identity and what he was trying to help me learn. Okay, and not to be too obstinate and hard-nosed, but on how, how do we know that this wasn't just sort of a subtler, gentler, kinder um, strata, stratum of your own personality or your own consciousness as opposed to some more universal you know, cosmic being like, like Yeshua would be? Well... I don't know. Okay. And you can be as obstinate as you like. I don't yeah. mind at all. I don't, a lot of times I'll ask questions that probably aren't my questions because I give people the benefit of the doubt, but I like to anticipate questions people might have so they're not sitting there frustrating saying, I wish he would ask this. You know? Sure. Uh-huh. Well, um, you know, I think it was Peter, was it St. Peter that said, test the spirit? Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I had this open, St. Paul, thanks. <laughs> I, was, I had this open dialogue, and I didn't have any problem expressing my doubt. It's not like that voice, if it were authentic, didn't know the doubt was there already. 
And what he shared with me was, it, he didn't, I didn't have to take it on blind faith. Mm-hmm. That I could just follow that voice and follow that intuition, and I would come to know the truth for myself. And when I began to follow that intuition, that voice, with things in my life, they started to go very differently. You know, where I would want to discipline my, chil- my children harshly, that would be a more loving message in a different way than what I would do it. And I started to give that the benefit of the doubt. And the more I followed it, the more things were working out. I was finding myself at greater peace. Mm-hmm. So I went ever deeper and followed that voice and followed that voice and followed that voice and followed that voice. And as the trust grew, my openness to hear tr- a deeper message also began to reveal itself. Because any inner guide that we're working with, you can call it your higher self, your Ontariyaman, whatever, mm-hmm. our mind has to be open enough and trust enough to be willing to hear what we don't necessarily want to hear. Mm-hmm. And that's when the, the relationship got much deeper and much more authentic when I was willing to, to have him share with me what I didn't want to hear. When, it, when we got past coddling the ego, because the ego would then just turn away from it and dismiss it all as hallucination and move on. Hmm. So following that advice, following the Course in Miracles, I was guided on a trip to India, began to have some real mystical experiences. And I was so green to spirituality, I didn't have a clue what was happening. Turns out that that ignorance contributed to the bliss because I wasn't evaluating I wasn't trying to measure where I was on this illusionary awakening scale. I was just kind of present. I had beginner's mind. Mm-hmm. And those experiences continued to reveal and to reveal and reveal even greater. And as those begin to expand your consciousness, you know the little tiny body mind that you thought you were couldn't never even dream up that kind of stuff. So all that culminated with two experiences in India happened about a week apart which were the, you know, I think Francis has described his, it's just a moment of knowing you're the infinite. And you know it, at least my experience was, I knew it with such clarity that the mind that I had known before couldn't even arise back out of that stillness. (laughs) I mean, it was, you you could almost sense that it was making some, some tiny effort, but it just never got enough momentum to kind of get up. So I spent maybe 10 weeks, 8 weeks in a really weird state because it was a kind of mindless state. It was real present, but it was just it took a while for it to kind of fully integrate. Mm-hmm. So that's the yeah. short story. To make the short story a little bit longer, you told me um, earlier that you now have remembered like all, a lot of your past lives or something. So did, in remembering those, did you see yourself as having been a, a yogi or a priest or a meditator or whatever through a, a spiritual aspirant through a number of past lives? Um, there was some of that, not, not a, a, a lot, but I'll share with you. I saw on one level those that might be related to one beingness, mm-hmm. one individual expression, but then ultimately all incarnations, past, present, and to come, all arise within you and are not separate from you. Mm-hmm. So within what might have been attributed to, to this, to this separated or distinct ray of light, 
Um, there was some of that. There was some time with Yesha when, when he was on the planet, which I came to learn later. That's why our connection was so you know, open and available when I made the, the soul level choice to, to awaken. And you made that soul level choice in this life, you're saying? Or was it some before this life, you, you're thinking, okay, I'm coming in now, and I'm at the age of such and such, I'm going to awaken? Um, or does it not, is that a ridiculous question because it's not so linear and time bound as that? Well, yes, no, and both. <laughs> I think Francis used that earlier. Mm-hmm. Um, my experience was that this would happen so that the work that I would do through one who, who wakes would be in this time frame at this time. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but that's not to say that in our waking lives we don't alter what those kind of intentions coming into a lifetime are. Sure. Yeah, just like a person might say, well, I'm going to go to college and study biology and then I'm going to medical school and something else might sure. be not happening. Right. Right. <laughs> yeah. So, Francis, um, for those who didn't watch the first interview with you... Could you give us, uh, you know, a synopsis of your life, your path, your awakening, in, you know, just five, ten minute version of it? Well, I'll try. Um, I guess my background is Catholic Christian background. Uh, I went to seminary uh, very early, right out of high school. And um, then at the age of 22, I went to a monastery. And I was at the Trappist Abbey of Gethsemane in Kentucky. Uh, the monastery of Thomas Merton, many of you may have heard of. Um, I was very influenced by him, read a lot about Thomas Merton and a lot of his books in the, um, uh, that he had written while he was in the monastery. I read them when I was in high school and was very deeply influenced. Went down to the monastery and felt very drawn to that way of life. So I entered there at the age of 22 um, and stayed there for a number of years. Uh, made my first vows there, Um, left subsequent to Gethsemane in the 90s. I lived in the Trappist Abbey of Our Lady of Mepkin in South Carolina near Charleston. Um, I lived a monastic life, eventually transferring to a French community, uh, living a bit in France, some in Canada, and um, got involved in some pastoral ministry. doing work with the dying. I I went back to school, did a kind of clinical pastoral education residency, a two-year residency. My second year residency was specially a specialty in end-of-life spiritual care. So I ended up doing a lot of work with elderly people that were dying, uh, people with terminal diagnosis in a hospice uh, setting, and also worked as a hospital chaplain, did some pastoral care in parishes, Uh, I was going along happily living my monastic life and doing some pastoral work and um, in 2010, one time in church, I suddenly had a kind of epiphany, one could say. Um, I guess if you had to put it in a nutshell, I would have to say that what I realized in that moment was that my own simple presence of being here in this very moment, here and now, that presence had always been present. Uh, I may not have always noticed it, but it had always been there. And that the presence of God, what I called God, that I had been seeking for so long, this presence, I'd had experiences of it coming and going and coming and going and coming and going, again and again and again. After a while, I kind of thought, well, maybe that's just the nature 
of that sense of God's presence. Maybe it's just not here all the time. Maybe we can only sense it at certain special times. God makes himself known. And uh, what I realized in that kind of split second was that that presence, in my simple presence, in the eternal here and now, you could say, are the same presence. So it's kind of maybe a realization of God. You could say God-realization, self-realization. You could call it what you would. But at any rate, it changed my life. Uh, <laughs> it was a very joyous discovery. Uh, it's never left since. So uh, you can imagine my, my wonder at that happening. Uh, I guess that's a kind of nutshell version, a Reader's yeah. Digest condensed version. Um, and actually your nutshell version recounts the outer circumstances of your life leading up to that epiphany. But really, you know, on, under the surface of those outer circumstances of this abbey and this job and whatnot was an ardent you know, spiritual, an ardent desire for sure. God, for, for oneness with Jesus, for, you know, however you'd like to phrase it, you were kind of burning with some intensity for a couple, two, three decades. Yeah, I, I would say that uh, early on in my life when I was just a teenager, I got involved in the charismatic renewal in, in the Catholic Church and Protestant churches and all mainline Christianity, there was a kind of neo-Pentecostal movement that really stressed a personal relationship to Christ and, um, and all that that entails, you know, just spiritual experiences, visions, speaking in tongues, prayer experiences, all these things were part of that movement. And I was pretty thoroughly immersed in that and loved it and really felt a very strong intimacy in, with Jesus, a devotion to Jesus um, a sense, uh, this weekend I shared some things about my aspirations as a young man where very early on in my life I realized that what I really came to this planet for, what I was really here for, was to somehow live my life in a Christ-like way. I was very drawn to the person of Christ. Uh, for me, Christ represented that sort of radiant uh, presence in the world. Of, of, of that, that Jesus kind of represented, the presence of God kind of shining through a human life. And uh, that was something that really sort of possessed me. I, it was kind of my raison d'etre, you could say it was my reason for being on the planet. I just felt like, yeah, that's what I want. When I would sometimes encounter different people in the charismatic renewal, uh, you know, Mother Teresa of Calcutta was a big influence on me because, precisely because of that, her her Christ-likeness, the, the, the sense in which the, the presence that she seemed to radiate in the world seemed to me very Christic, seemed very Christ-like. The joy, the peace, the serenity, the, the, the kind of compassion, you know, and, and that's sort of what I was after. I think that's what really motivated me to become a monk. That's what motivated me to do all the things I did in terms of spiritual seeking, uh, I studied with various teachers. I did, I, as a contemplative monk, I was given quite a bit of leeway, I would say, to go where my heart told me to go in terms of spiritual practice. And I, I did for a very long period of time. Uh, Rick was talking about a lady he had interviewed that was a practitioner of the Jesus Prayer, which is just a prayer that, in using the name of Jesus repetitively, like a mantra. And uh, in the Jesus Prayer literature, the Philokalia, the early uh, fathers of the church that wrote about this prayer, it's a kind of monastic spiritual practice that developed over some centuries. And they used to talk about the mind descending into the heart. 
that you'd pray this prayer over and over like a mantra, and eventually what happened was that the mind that was praying the prayer descended into the heart. And then the person's heart awakened in this Christ presence, and, and there was kind of a sense of Christ being present in the heart. I mean, it's one maybe very Christian way of talking about awakening, but I think it is true awakening nonetheless. And um, so, yeah, I would say uh, that's that's very right. My my, my impetus, my the kind of driving force, was in many ways uh, symbolized in the person of the Christ of, of Jesus, Jesus Christ. I interviewed uh, Timothy Freak twice. I don't know if you've ever read any Timothy's I saw books. the interviews, yeah. Yeah, but um, he contends that there was probably no historical Jesus, that uh, you can look at the traditions of Egypt and about half a dozen other cultures that he mentions and see the same patterns, born of a virgin, three wise men, you know, killed or crucified in some way, raised from the dead after three days, and that you know, the whole story of Christ was just some kind of archetype that culture, one culture after another keeps repeating and turning into a, a, you know, sort of a source of inspiration. So I, I'm not sure if that even needs to be addressed, but I'm, I'm kind of curious about it. And I guess the, the underlying question is, um, you know, who is Jesus? Who was Jesus? Who is he now? Mm-hmm. Um, there's obviously uh, a kind of a fundamentalist absolute uh, attitude toward him in, in certain circles. Um, when fundamentalists call me on the phone, I start talking about astronomy to them and, and begin to discuss <laughs> how many inhabited planets there probably are in the universe. And is he on tour? And does he spend 33 years on the planet? <laughs> and if he does, how could the universe only be 6,000 years old? Because there's a lot of planets. <laughs> and that, they usually hang up on me after a while. But um, what do you guys say? I mean, do, do you give any credence at all? How, how would you respond to Timothy? Uh, and what is your personal sense of, of Jesus on an experiential level uh, has, and, and also as an historical person? Well, I, my own experience, which of course all I can relate to, mm-hmm. is I have found his consciousness shared with me to be very real. Mm-hmm. Very real. And in my own, looking back and seeing my lifetimes, there was one that was at the same time as his. Mm-hmm. So I had that symbol... Is it real? Is it illusion? Is it dream? Does it matter? I mean, it really doesn't matter. If Jesus is a helpful symbol and tool for anyone to connect deeper into their own self, great. If they don't believe it, there are a thousand other ways to find the truth. Mm -hmm. How about you, Francis? Well, I mean, I think in modern theology these days in Christian circles, in the mainline denominations, certainly the Catholic Church, there's a lot of uh, talk about the historical Jesus. You hear that a lot. There was a thing called the Jesus Seminar in which a lot of scholars got together and they kind of debated about the various scriptural um, accounts of, of words of Jesus, things Jesus said, and they'd go through and rate them. You know, we think that Jesus very likely said this. We think he maybe said this. We think it's probably an ice cube's chance in hell that he said this. <laughs> you know, they went through and raided the whole, all, the, all the canonical Gospels. And I think even the, it seems to me that they even did that with some Gnostic Gospels that weren't in the canon of Scripture. And there is a lot of uh, concern about the historical Jesus and was there even a historical Jesus, some people would say. Uh, personally, I think it's probable that there, there, there was a historical Jesus. Now, whether or not uh, all the things that are attributed to, attributed to him as having said whether he said those things or not, I think that's kind of up for grabs a lot. I think maybe these scholars are probably at a better place 
just academically to kind of know what's maybe likely and so on and so forth. They base that on various things that gets kind of very complex and technical and I'm not qualified to go into that. But um, I kind of agree with John Mark in a certain sense. I, I think that for me, especially now, Jesus is a kind of archetype. He's a symbol. And uh, much like the Buddha is a symbol. The Buddha, many people, you know, when they come into uh, Buddhist temples in Buddhist countries, they, 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 they bow down to the Buddha. And uh, I worked with a Buddhist teacher for quite a while. And he told me at one point, he said, you know, when they bow down to the Buddha like that, they're not really bowing down to the historical Buddha, although you know the historical there was a historical Buddha in all probability also. A lot of teachings and kind of evidence that there was this being that existed, Gotama, and so on. But um, he was saying what they're really bowing to is the Buddha within them. That there's there's this potentiality in human beings of of waking up, yeah. of realizing who they are. You know, I think the Buddha represents that. Christ represents that. And for many of us in the West, Christ is the most compelling archetype of that. You know, when we were really little kids, many of us heard stories about Jesus that were beautiful, beautiful stories about this beautiful, radiant being who went through the world radiating this love and compassion everywhere he went. And uh, I know that was certainly in my mind as a child. And I think in some ways that's really... um, What's important about the person of Christ is what does the person of Christ represent for you? You know, not so much whether or not he existed. I personally believe he probably did exist historically, uh, but I, I think in a way, I think you're right. That's it's a bit irrelevant. Yeah, you know? I think maybe the question is, what does he represent for you now too? Because obviously, in your experience, you know. He's primarily not some guy who lived 2,000 years ago. He's a living presence now that communicates with you now. And, you know, millions of Christians uh, feel that their lives were transformed once they made the conscious kind of connection with Jesus. Big changes took place. Um, And, of course, then the fundamentalist mentality comes in and they insist that that's the only way and so on. But that's kind of irrelevant. Um, So do you feel that Jesus is... uh, like some kind of guiding deity for this planet uh, that, um, you know, is there for anyone who wishes to form a relationship with him and then that relationship can transform their life and perhaps that there are other guiding deities like people speak of Ramana Maharshi coming to them in a vision and then they, they establish this relationship with him even though he's deceased. Is that a, a viable theory as to who and what Jesus is and what he's doing? Um, that's what he describes of himself mm-hmm. in the way of mastery, which is a channeling that he did where he speaks, mm-hmm. um, that he is but one of many Christed beings. I see. Ramana, I mean, we, we, there are lists and lists of them. Mm-hmm. And that they all perceive each other as absolute equals. Yeah. Equals, they, we share one self, one ground of being. And that that is perfectly equal. And within each and every person now, whether they have woken up to that presence or not. So he has no um, corner on the awakening market, so to speak. Any being can connect with some inner guide that works for them. Whether it's Yeshua or Ramana Maharshi, or if you think of dead relative. Can ha- whatever that is, 
love will show up and work with you with whatever works. Yeah. And in the in his teachings, um, the way of mastery, he makes it very clear. You don't have to believe in him to awaken. Right. You only have to awaken to the truth of eternal nature, which is what he is, which is what we all are. Mm. But there's no like prerequisite. If you don't believe in Jesus, then you're screwed. When you were saying uh, that he is like part of, you know, there are a number of beings who can do this. I was sort of thinking, okay, so it's like a team. And uh, then when you said dead relatives, I thought, hmm, but that sounds like Little League and Jesus is on the Yankees. You know, there, there seems like, you know, levels of, of professionalism <laughs> in terms of these teams. Uh, but I guess maybe what you're saying is whatever works for you. I mean, you know, if you're uh, in the first grade, you don't need a, a calculus teacher. You right. need an arithmetic teacher who's going to teach you one and one is two. And, and so on, and so you connect with whatever is helpful, and then maybe you move on to another one once you graduate from the first grade? Sure. Well, I had other teachers come to show up to work on specific things in my eternal beingness. Mm-hmm. So um, there's infinite help available to all of us. It's this thought that we have to walk the path to purification or to love, and then we're worthy of the big surprise. Rather than saying, I don't have a damn clue how to get there. And I'll take all the help I can get mm-hmm. in, t- in guiding me there. So what do you, you live in the South. Mm-hmm. More or less Bible Belt, although you're in a little island of sanity in, in Asheville. Um, <laughs> some would say insanity, but it depends on your value system. But um, would you, uh, how, how, what do you make of this saying that's so often repeated, that I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. And, you know, they, ham- they use that to hammer people and, on, and to dismiss anything other than the path they're on. What do you make of it? Well, I am, the way, please answer this. I am the way, the truth, and the life. The truth and the life. And no one comes to the Father except by me. Mm-hmm. But that me does not represent a body-mind identity. That me represents the Christ, the one presence, God, whatever that is. Mm-hmm. That's the only way you can come to it. It's interesting, we have to transcend our little idea of me in order to wake up to that one that is the way, the truth, and the life. So when he said that, he wasn't referring to himself as a body. Right. He was referring to himself as the one God consciousness, which Francis talked about, about his own awakening. You wake up that there is no difference. Mm-hmm. So it, it was not by no means him saying, look, I'm special and I'm the anointer. It was saying, I am the one just like you. Because he went on in that gospel to say, you are the life, the truth, and the way. Hmm. And you'd concur with that, I'm sure. Yeah, I would concur with that. And my sense of the scripture now is a lot different than my sense of the scripture when I was studying in seminary and so on in monastic formation and all that uh, because now my understanding of the scriptures in the light of a kind of um, awakened heart that, that looks at it differently. And uh, often I find that when I have a scripture like that that maybe seems troublesome on one level, I can just change one little word and the whole thing takes on a different meaning. And with that particular scripture, I've, I've actually thought about it and I would, instead of I am the way, the truth, and the life, no one comes to the Father but by me, I would say, the I am is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by the I am. 
And the I am is the I am in me, the I am in you. You know, so I am the way, the I am within me is the way, the truth, and the light, and the I am within you is the way, the truth, and the light. Yeah. So it's, it's a, you know, I, I, it, it could be taken as a very sectarian, narrow kind of thing that Jesus of Nazareth, this dude who lived back 2,000 years ago in the Middle East, is the way, the truth, and life. If you don't believe explicitly in that particular being uh, as being divine, then you're doomed. Or maybe, what if Jesus was pointing to something much more universal than just his own kind of ego sense, which I would say he probably was, that would be my guess. And he was saying, this I am that dwells in me also dwells in you. And you have to access that to find your way back to the source of all being itself. The Mm. Father, he would say, but the ground of all being itself. There's other scriptures too where he says, I and the Father are one. You know, and I I said in in the book I just put out, you know, what if he meant that to mean something a little broader than how we normally interpret it? What if he meant instead of I and the Father are one in some exclusive way, maybe he was pointing to the idea that you also are one with this infinite source of being itself with beingness itself. You yourself, I am, you are, you all are one with that reality. You just need to wake up and see it. And when you wake up and see it, that's the Christ. That's the Christ not 2,000 years ago off in the Middle East. That's the Christ right now in Wapakoneta, Ohio. It's taking the kids to soccer. That's the Christ right now in Chicago, Illinois. You know, getting on the train and that's the Christ right now getting interviewed by Rick Archer. You know? By the Christ, no <laughs> By the Christ. Christ interviewing Christ. Yeah. But there's an important distinction I'd like to make. It, it's easy within the context of the world to, to bash fundamentalists. Mm-hmm. Jesus was simply referring to his sense of identification what that was the whole. Mm-hmm. When those teachings go out and body minds hear I they can't hear that's what he meant. They can only attribute it to a body because that's what they believe they are. That's the extent of the ex, ex, the extent of their sense of existence. Mm-hmm. So the interpretation in that way is often treated very harshly. I, I kind of look at it as like a hundred-story building. Mm-hmm. If you're on the first floor, your view is of a brick wall. Right. If you're on the 50th floor, it's this beautiful panorama. Neither one is wrong. Yeah. The first floor can't see what the fifth, the fiftieth can. Mm-hmm. It's just as right. Mm-hmm. And it's it's what tends to happen is when we rise in consciousness, we tend to judge the floors below us mm-hmm. and envy the ones above. When you finally wake up, you recognize you took the whole trip, mm-hmm. and there was nothing but innocence on every floor because you could only see what you could see while you were there. So there's no guilt about it. There's no wrongness about it. And if we would allow people to walk their path and be on the floor that they are and just let it be. Good analogy. You know, the other day I was thinking about, um, I was talking about um, kind of development and the process of awakening and how it needs to be integrated and it it grows and it expands. And this reality that we've awakened to is infinite. Therefore, the understanding of it, the unfolding of our understanding, the deepening 
of our love and our understanding and our presence can only be infinite. You know, it can't be finite. How could it? And, and, and it's, it's a lot like if you had a little baby. You know, we look at little babies. There was a little baby this weekend here that was just precious, beautiful, perfect little being. You know, you look at that and you think, what a perfect being this is. Smiling and happy and radiant and radiating that joy of being in a very innocent way. And you would never say, oh, well, you know, this isn't a, this isn't a very good, uh, good person because uh, they're not fully grown and they can't talk and, the, you know, you have to feed them and change diapers. They can't even go to the bathroom by themselves. You know, far from perfect. No, we don't look at it that way. We see that baby and we say, that is a perfect baby. You know, now, if that baby looks like that 30 years from now and you still have to change your diapers and, 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 and do all those things, well, you know, there'd be something a little off, wouldn't there? Maybe take her to the doctor. <laughs> she hasn't grown much. There's something <laughs> wrong. But that baby is perfect as a baby. And it's the same with us spiritually as we grow, as we develop. There is a growth. There is a development. It's not an either-or thing. It's not like, you know, you're awake or you're not awake. I mean, on one level, okay, that's true. On another level, there's an infinite expansion possible. And each level, like you say, with your analogy, each level is perfect as it is. You know? And each level incorporates the previous ones. Absolutely. Right. You know, it's like you have the circumference keeps growing. Yeah. And, you know, you can say to the person on the first floor, the second floor, the tenth floor, yeah, I, I see what you mean. You're totally right. But there's also this. But there's right. more. Yeah. Sure, but you don't ridicule. I mean, that, right. was, that was his message. Let those who have ears to hear, hear. Yes. They'll take in all they can take in from where they, pre, where they right. perceive themselves to be. Yeah. But within all his teachings, which that was, he was a master in parables, is he didn't give teachings for different floors. He was able to craft one teaching that could take you from the bottom to the top and that teaching would grow with you as your sense of self yeah. grows as you move up in yeah. metaphorically in consciousness. Because the parable of the, the prodigal son can be understood on the most basic worldly form level, mm -hmm. but yet it speaks to the greatest spiritual truth mm -hmm. on yep. the top level. So the mastery of his teachings was the ability to speak to every aspect of his one self, no matter their level of dreaming. I'm sure that a lot of people listening to this <clears throat> will you know, be able to relate to that in terms of you know, having grown over the years and then reading a, a scripture like the Bhagavad Gita or Ramana or the Bible or something. And that, you know, each year that they read it, they, they discover a, a new level of depth that they hadn't notice the previous year you know it just keeps getting deeper and deeper even though it's the same words sure. over and over again and wouldn't it be different if we read that and said wow that's my point of view right here right now yeah and not need to defend it or go out and get everybody else to see your point of view but just rest in that's my perspective now mm -hmm. and know that tomorrow or next week or next year you want it to be greater yeah we have this fear-based consciousness that we, we get some level of clarity and we just want to stop there and try to protect that. And we do it by trying to oftentimes peddle it on other people or judge other people who, who aren't quite as enlightened and see it that way. There's no need for any of that. Right. If we would allow everyone to walk their path, we talk about spiritual paths like it's Christianity or Buddhism. Every person's life 
is their path, period. You can think of A Course in Miracles is an or you might use on your own little river or Buddhism or Zen. They're tools to help, but your life is your path. Crafted perfectly. You can't ever get off of it, and there's no way you can screw it up. (laughs) Good news. Gospel. Yeah. 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 So walk your path. If If tools are helpful, if other people's experiences are helpful... Oftentimes we chase other people's experiences. Just walk your life, moment to moment. You can only breathe your breath. Mm-hmm. So do you feel that people who put most of their energies into trying to convert other people to their way of seeing things, to their religion or sect or cult or whatever, are fundamentally insecure in their own in their own situation, or and they're trying to compensate for that by getting others into it, or? Well, sure, that, it's all fear. Yeah. If, if my belief, more people believe what I believe, then, then I, I feel then more, more secure, secure in my yeah. More sure I'm right. Yeah. Sure. <laughs> but, you know, where you're going when you get to the top of this building is beyond all belief. Mm-hmm. So no longer do you need to defend any or say one's right and one's wrong. Mm-hmm. Pure awareness is allowing all of them. And yet, Francis and I can both tell you, we went through levels of belief on our way to realization. You end up throwing all those beliefs over your shoulder. They only can point you at at their best expression. They can only point to the truth. But the mind fears not knowing itself through thought and belief. Because that's the only way the mind can know itself is through thought and belief. Well, and like I shared today in our little gathering that I, you know, it's not really a matter of really even knowing yourself. Like we talk a lot about knowing who you really are and all that. Well, what I've discovered is what it really means to know who I really am is it it means that I don't know who I am. (laughs) That who I am is a complete open space of, of awareness. Who I am is just open consciousness. And, and, and who I am on another level is love. And, and define love. I Looks mean. good on you, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> so, it's one of those things that, you know, who you really are can't be defined because who you really are is not an object. It's being itself. And who you really are can only be lived. You know, and I talked a, a little bit the other day about the early fathers of the church called humankind a capax dei which is a Latin phrase meaning a capacity for God. You know, that who we are has nothing to do with some separate little individual. This, what we think of as this separate little individual is actually simply an emptiness, a capacity. I think that's what, what the Buddhists are getting at when they talk about that quality of anatta, no self, that there's this kind of emptiness that is made empty in order to contain fullness. Fullness of the life of God. Fullness of being. You know, so on one level, there is this emptiness. On this other level, there's this fullness. They don't, they're not mutually exclusive. They don't fight with each other. You know, and, and the other thing too, when, you were, when, when Jean-Marc was talking, I was thinking of, I often think of, of this, this comes to me. You know, the truth needs no defense. The truth can take care of itself. You, know, you, you don't have to kind of rush to its defense. 
And, and it's funny because since I've been in this whole non-dual spiritual scene and I've been kind of uh, interacting with various people in this and, I, you know, and I'm pretty familiar with the, uh, the kind of concept and the experience of religious fundamentalism and people getting kind of caught in a view and then defending that view and being sure that they're right and you're wrong or, you know, we're right and they're, th- those ones are wrong, you know, and dividing up the world. And what, what is that? Who, who, who likes to divide things up? You know, it's the ego. It's, the, it's this, this, this kind of false self that thinks of itself as this separate entity rather than as a, as a kind of unified whole. And, you know, the ironic thing is a lot of people in the non-dual scene look at Christians and poke fun at Christians and talk about how narrow they are. And I have to honestly admit, you know, I've run across just as much narrowness in Advaita, Neo-Advaita, as I did in Christianity. Maybe more, sometimes a little nastier. You know, people get very, very offended if you don't have exactly their view of non-duality and you don't use the exact same words that they use. And, you know, what is that? It's, it's all the same kind of reality. And I, I think a, a being like Christ, this kind, of, this kind of symbol of Christ, it points to something that transcends that, this kind of petty little, you know, divisions and all that. Mm-hmm. That was Yeshua's teaching of let your cup be empty of the small self right. and the big self will fill it and it, your cup will runneth over. There you go. Love will... So, you know, same, same teaching. And when you really wake up into them, you see the same teaching in every... They're in Buddhism, they're in Zen, they're all pointing oh, sure. at the same thing. They're, I mean, they're all saying the same thing using a different language. Nice. It's yes. really the, the end of judgment is the welcome mat to enlightenment. And we hear it all the time, but we're, we're scared to give up judgment because what we really want to hold on to is the I that's doing all the judging. And we'll put our focus on what we're judging so that we won't look at who's the judger. And of course, when you do the inquiry there, you, you will find that there's nothing really there. When uh, you two guys, well, you came a little late today, and, and as soon as we had a break, I saw the two of you kind of go like, you know, bees to honey, <laughs> and, and begin having this conversation. And I was over on the other side of the room um, so what what did you, what you, you, I guess you began kind of exploring where each other was at in terms of the whole, your whole orientation to Jesus and whatnot. What kind of conversation did you have? And maybe you can reiterate some well, of Well, I mean, it, uh, you know, I, and I say this kind of thing a lot, but I don't think our conversation was really that important. I mean, like when, when John Mark walked into the room and he came down here and we kind of, our eyes met and, and the Christ in me could see the Christ in him. I mean, there's something funny about that, isn't there, that that when you awaken to this reality within, uh, you see it. Well, for, for one thing, you see it in every single human being on the face of the planet. Right. You know, after this happened to me, I would be in a metro in Montreal, and there'd be a lot of people, some of them looked kind of grumpy, and yet I could look around and see so clearly that this consciousness, this beingness, uh, and yes, even this bliss, which it's essentially blissful. And it's in every single human being on the face of the planet. You know, a lot of them don't know it. A lot of them aren't aware of it, but it's there nonetheless. It's always been there, always will be. I, you know, when I awoke to that reality in me, it wasn't just in me. 
I came to realize, you know, this Christ, this reality, this beingness, this spacious awareness, whatever name you want to slap on it, it's, it's absolutely permeating everything that exists. Mm-hmm. And when someone wakes up to that, it's almost like the Christ waking up to the Christ. It's the, the Christ recognizing himself or herself. And, and when people have woken up to that, it's just obvious. If you've woken up and you see someone else who's woken up, you know it. You, you, you sense it. You know, It's just like a, if a family member that you never knew kind of walked and knocked on your front door, and you might look at them and go, oh, this might be my brother or my sister or something. Because you recognize, you recognize the resemblance. It's like, oh, they got mom's eyes just like I do. <laughs> Whatever. Yeah. There's something about this. There's a flavor of the Christ spirit, the Christ kind of consciousness. There's a flavor to it. There's a, you know, that prayer I shared by Cardinal Newman talks about the fragrance of Christ. Let me spread your fragrance everywhere I go. Flood my soul with your spirit and life. Penetrate and possess my whole being so utterly that every soul I come in contact with may feel your presence in my soul. And and when when you're awake to that presence, and, and, and you meet someone else who's awake to that presence, it's obvious. It's a love fest, you know? <laughs> the Gita has this phrase of seeing the self in all beings and all beings in the self. But it is special when that self is looking back consciously. Mm. Yes. Yeah. That's, that's something really special that you could never put a word on. No. Mm. They talk of heaven on earth, you know, and a society in which a large percentage of people are awake in this way. Um, Do you guys have a sense that, and you know, in Christian terms, I guess they call it the the second coming and the golden age that's supposed to come after the second coming and and so on. Um, Do you folks have any thoughts on that? Do you have any kind of intuitive sense of that being on the horizon? Mm Mm-hmm. We, we were talking about this just before we got started. Mm-hmm. Yeshua has shown me a global event mm-hmm. of awakening. Instantaneous? Or, I mean, you snap your fingers, or, or is something that's actually under, underway now? Yes, but uh, it's underway now, but there will, it will reach a crescendo. A tipping when point. It, yeah, when it happens. Under monkey kind. Yeah. <laughs> Bam. Huh. Um, now, the, the way time works is not linear, so that... That potential could happen tomorrow. It could happen 100 years from now. Right. It depends on how many beings decide to drop the charade that they're not God, that they're not Christ, and stop playing small and simply wake up to the truth that's been true all along. The more that happens, and it's happened on this, I mean, you know, when Buddha and Jesus walked, there were very few. You know, I've, I know... 10 or 12 personally. So it's happening with great, great, great speed. When you look, when you see it energetically, what's happening, mm-hmm. it is this quantum kind of movement. Yeah. What do you see as the variable that would determine whether or not people decide to drop the charade? Because in a way, when you say that, it makes it sound like people are really being obstinate, you know, that, that they could drop it, but they're not dropping it. And... You know, it seems like everyone would want to drop it if they knew of the possibility. So, you know, what's the what's the handle or the fulcrum that that could enable a much more mass 
dropping of the Sarid. Well, fear is the fulcrum. They're scared. Mm -hmm. And this... People being able to see that it's normal people, mm -hmm. and that it's right here. Well. And it, <laughs> I've been rooming with Francis yeah. for the last couple of days. Yeah. <laughs> it, it, it's not high and mighty. It's not white roby. Right. Tacitly, every person in this room and every person that will see it, something inside them goes, well, why not me? Yeah. Why not now? So the fact that more and more beings are awakening, we'll call it into our Christ self. Mm -hmm. Others may call it whatever. What that's really mirroring back to every soul is it's okay. Yeah. It's okay. You can drop the whole charade of needing to protect your little tiny kingdom to become the whole. You give up really nothing, but when that nothing that you thought was you is everything you think there is, it can be really frightening. I experienced a great deal of fear mm -hmm. at, the, at the loss of that. Afterwards, you think, oh my God, how could I have ever been scared of this? But what the truth is. So this is what's accelerating the Christ. And for me, you don't need any spirit. You don't need any fancy practice. You don't have to go to a cave. You don't have to meditate any day. You, it's here. It's now. It's within every being. If you look behind the thoughts, if you look behind what's seeing, if you look behind what's hearing, it's there. It's there, and it, there's no criteria except the soul's recognition of that. That's what it really is. When our body-mind moves into alignment with that, because the soul wants nothing but to awaken, when our body-mind and our soul are on the same page, it can go very quickly. <clears throat> One of the themes uh, that Francis and I have been talking about this weekend is you know, whether, you, whether, whether you do need to do or might want to do some kind of practice or something, as opposed to just, you know, why not just recognize it? Like, you know, Francis, for instance, just recognized it one day. He was in the process of putting a wafer in his mouth or having it put there, and all of a sudden, bingo. But After 30 years of practice. That was 30 years of practice. <laughs> possibly Zen, monasticism, you know, you, 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 you know, you were a pretty ardent seeker. And, you know, there's the old Zen saying that, Enlightenment may be an accident, but practice makes you accident prone. So, sure. you know, so I, I would agree with you. You don't have to do that, but I wouldn't proscribe it. And I would say, if you're inclined to do that, don't be dissuaded by such statements. Do what seems to work for you, and it, it could be conducive of to course. your awakening. And I, I had practices too, but we don't make the practice the purpose. Right. But oftentimes that becomes yeah. the purpose within the egoic consciousness. It's so that, that's a, it's what a means I'm to an to. end. It's not an end in itself. Yeah. And and I and I noticed John Mark said after he said that he immediately said to to become something like to become aware of that which sees, that which knows, that which hears, that which you know. In other words, to become aware of consciousness itself before it's conscious of anything in particular, just consciousness itself. And that is, guess what, folks? A practice. Mm -hmm. You know, you practice doing that. Because it's just a slight shift of attention, isn't it? You know, normally we notice when, we, when we're hearing things, we notice what we're hearing. We notice the symphony. We notice the rap music. We notice the bird whistling. Or we notice the jackhammer or whatever. And we're focused on the, on the object that's making the noise. Or when we see, we're focused on the objects that we're looking at. But there's always, always, always a consciousness that is seeing through our eyes, that's hearing through our ears. 
you know, all any good spiritual practice worth its salt is just pointing us back to that one consciousness that in a certain sense is unchanging. It's always present. It's this silent awareness that's aware of whatever we're aware of. But how often are we aware of that? You know, and I think awakening is just when that wakes up to itself. You know, when awareness, when consciousness becomes conscious of itself. And that is, in a nutshell, what enlightenment is, what awakening is. It's a very simple thing. It's not rocket science. It's not esoteric. It's not strange. You and I were talking about Andrew Cohen's idea of evolutionary enlightenment, which I don't think he really originated. It's it's an age-old idea, perhaps. But... The uh, but he's like reality. He's articulating, <laughs> yeah. He's articulating it nicely. Yeah. And and the the gist of it is that um, you know there's a sort of a fundamental force within the universe itself, a kind of a guiding principle that um, has the intention or the effect of wake having consciousness wake up to itself. And you know there's you know the blood in our veins, the cells in our bodies. The, the evolution of, of various species are, seem to be, all be moving in the direction of forms which are more and more capable of enabling consciousness to wake up to itself within those forms, or mm-hmm. by virtue of those forms. Mm-hmm. That's more of a statement than a question, but you guys could riff on it if you like. Well, despite, I, I don't know about that theory, I've never really heard it, but uh-huh. the truth's been true the whole town. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> From Big Bang onwards. Yeah. You know, and I think like, Andrew Cohen would be perfectly willing to admit that he did not invent yeah, yeah. <laughs> it. Yeah. The idea excites him. So he talks yeah, about yeah. It. And he's good at it. He, yeah. I like what he's saying. Yeah. Well, I'll share with you one of the things Yeshua told me when I was walking my path. He said, all the love that will ever be exists right now. Why not open and welcome all of it? There won't be more two years from now when you think... You know, you'll be happier or anything else. There wasn't lit less of it at the Big Bang, you know. It's all right here, right now. How open can you be to all that is now and drink it in? Do you find that your capacity for openness nonetheless continues to expand or deepen, though? Paradoxically, that's the yeah. whole thing. <laughs> there's, it's unchanging and unchangeable, yeah. but yet its revelation is beautifully ongoing and you know you just know that will never end right never end and that's the excitement of it mm-hmm. it's life really starts at awakening that's when you, you really start opening and then the mystery of love takes great delight in my experience in revealing itself to you in ever deeper ways yeah. because god has really nothing to hide it's everything to give We've just been fearful of God's will. We, we, we think it's, do I take this job or I take that job? We, we think God's will is all kind of stuff other than this full inheritance, the fullness of what God is, infinite creative power, infinite awareness that currently is expressing itself in a mind-boggling number of ways just within this room. And we, we, we're fearful to wake up into that because we think we're going to lose something. Well, and we're fearful also because it's unknown, isn't it? And, and, and that's the very nature of it. Like I say, when you know who you are, knowing who you really are is having no idea who you are. 
And not and needing how, to know. And not needing to know and being comfortable and being willing to rest in that openness. Because that openness is precisely who you are. And that openness is constantly manifesting in wonderful, creative, awesome new ways. And that does seem to be the nature of the Absolute, doesn't it? That it kind of manifests in all these forms we see. All these millions and trillions of forms. I mean, anymore, you know, a lot of people in the whole Veda scene, and they're like, oh, that's all nothing, you know. He said, somebody said, it's just a speck of dust. It <laughs> right. doesn't matter. It's nothing to it. It's like, well, okay, but, but then why is it here? Mm. You know, it seems to be here anyway. Apparently it's here. You know, I, I, and believe me, I really do get it. I, I know it's not really here, but it, the appearance is here. And isn't it lovely? You know, I'm, I'm always amazed anymore. I go out in nature, or I just go out, I can, I can get, get excited over cracks in the sidewalk anymore. <laughs> just because, you know, I, I think what a wonderful, what a, what, a, what a wonder this form is here. Yeah. What a miracle. You know, like that Your song, song. Uh, yeah. Yeah, that song, um, what was, the, what was that one the, lyric? The, the miracle is that anything is here at all. That anything is here at all. Yeah. It says, I used to look for miracles... And now the only wonder is, no, what is it? I used to look... Now the greatest miracle is that anything is here at all. Something like that. It's a, yeah. it's a, you, you guys can look it up. It's a song called... Everything is Holy Now Everything by is Holy Peter, now Mayer. By Peter Mayer. It's yeah. a beautiful song. Great song. Yeah, I, when I was coming down here, I had a, you know hour and a half in O'Hare Airport to kill. And I was walking from one terminal to the other, and they had this, some science museum had a display on the wall of kind of electron microscope pictures and artist renditions of nanoparticles, of really microscopic stuff. And so I stopped and looked at them and read the little captions underneath. And it was just like, isn't that wonderful that, you know, that the incredible intelligence that goes into structuring things on this level of creation and why, why should these little, you know, molecular structures be like that? And, and, you know, it's not billiard balls just arbitrarily binging into each other. No, There's this kind of a beautiful order innate, brilliant, un infinitely unfathomable intelligence that's governing it. And, you know, if we looked at a single of the trillions of cells in our body, that is jaw-droppingly amazing. Just the, the, the level of intelligence that goes into the organization of a single cell. Mm -hmm. And here we are in, a, in an ocean of that, <laughs> as the ocean of that. Yeah. And the true joy of enlightenment is the exploration of that infinitely unknown and completely unknowable, but yet intimately experienceable. Exploration. And that's the yeah. innocence of a child that Yeshua spoke about. Mm -hmm. Well, and it's funny because uh, Jesus says in the canonical Gospels, Jesus talks about uh, become as a little child. Right. You know? And, and, and when you wake up, there, there is. It's a little child. Yeah, it's fun. Yeah, you know, I, I feel like life. I'm five most of the time. Yeah, they're it's, fascinated with everything. They're crawling yeah. around, putting everything in their mouth. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, the little baby we had here today was getting to this point where she discovered her toes. Yeah. And how fascinating. And they were going to her mouth. And <laughs> like she was feeling them and doing all kinds of things with them. And, and that is the way it is when you're awake. Because you realize the wonder, the awesomeness of everything. Mm. And, and part of it is, I don't know what this is. I remember when I, the, the, the day I woke up in the church and I looked down at that Eucharist in my hand and I was like, gosh, I've studied this for years. And, I, and it wasn't even a thought. It wasn't even in words. But there was just a look of just like, what is this? What is everything? What is life? What is, 
You know, it wasn't even a thought. It was just the wonder of that, of looking at things with this, the innocent eyes of a child that, you know, I don't know what all this is, but boy, it sure is cool. <laughs> Marcia and gave it's this, absolutely benevolent and innocent, all of it. Yeah. Marcia gave this beautiful lecture one time, where, Marcia Mahashyogi, where he talked about how if there were a man who, you know, really appreciated the paintings of a particular artist and just, you know, was fascinated, totally loved them, and just adored the paintings, you know, on and on. And then eventually the artist, it would come to the artist's attention. I really, I have an admirer in some of this guy. And the, the admirer wouldn't have to go and seek out the artist. The artist would come to him when he, when he discovered that there was someone who appreciated his paintings that mm, deeply. Nice. And the, the analogy was meant to illustrate that once awakening has happened, post-awakening, the kind of awakening you guys are talking about, then appreciation really begins to deepen and become more enriched and deeper and deeper and deeper to the point where, you know, the, it's so deep that God ends up revealing himself in much greater richness. Than, oh, yeah. 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 <laughs> Ways that will just blow you away. Mm-hmm. You know, we, there's a lot of talk about gratitude on the spiritual path, mm-hmm. and it's really important, but for me, kind of after the awakening, it's, it's like an infinitude. Gratitude just isn't big enough. And gratitude, of course, always had a choice, usually because something had happened. Whereas this resting in infinitude is just a causeless... Joy. joy. Yeah, yeah, joy. And, and it's, it's really this open invitation that the soul's just kind of wide open and wanting God to just have its way with you. Mm. Come give me all of yourself. All of yourself. Mm. And it's, it's, I can't even, there's no way to put words on how intimate that void of nothing is. It, it's, it's just, you can't put a word to it, but it's so here now and so close but you can't point to it you can't see you can't describe it but it's just this radiant infinitude and you could as easily call it fullness of nothingness I mean that um, is sure. that's, that's a good adjective well or you could just be silent and that's yeah. probably the <laughs> not call it anything yeah. <laughs> just enjoy it sure. that's kind of what I'm tending to more and more yeah it's just the silence. As soon as you call it anything, you get into trouble. You know. Well, you Meister, Meister Eckhart has a famous saying where he said, um, uh, "We we know God. The path to knowing God is a path of unknowing." That you know, there's more, and this is the kind of on the strand of Christian mysticism. It's called the apophatic path, the path of darkness to the intellect, where we kind of we can say more what God isn't than what God is. Mm-hmm. That we can't really, in a positive sense, say what God is. And that's the Buddha, you know. The Buddha was certainly pointing to this infinite, absolute reality. You know, people say the Buddha was an atheist. It's like, well, you know, maybe on some level you could say that. But I think the Buddha's pointing to this this awakened awareness that all the saints and sages of all the religions have been pointing to for so many years. But he, he said very precious little about it in any kind of affirmative way. Not because he didn't believe in it or whatever. And in one sense, it doesn't matter if you believe in it or not. The point isn't to believe in it. The point is to be that. To live in that reality. 
you know? And that's what the Buddha was pointing to. So he'd say maybe what it wasn't. And mm. in, in, in a certain sense, that's much safer, isn't it? Yeah. That's the neti-neti thing. The neti-neti. Right. In John of the Cross, nada-nada. Right. You know, it's that same thing. It's, you can't really say what it is. You can only be and, 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 and experience what it is. Even experience isn't a good word, but for lack of a better word. It's a direct seeing. It's a direct knowing. You know, it's not, a, it's not like a, an object that you can describe and take measurements on and say what color it is. And, you know, that's not the nature of what we're, what we're talking about here. And that's part of the wisdom of the Buddha in not giving it too much description. Yeah. If you describe it too much, there'll be a mind out there that says, Ooh, I know exactly what that is. Yep. And that mind will rest in the concept and won't go any further. <laughs> Sounds familiar, huh? <laughs> it, you know, I think that is a big weakness of the whole Neo-Advedic scene. So many of us have said in words what we, what, we, what we think it is or how we describe it or maybe even how we experience it. But the, but the weakness in that is that then people form concepts and then they get attached to the concept and then they might even have a, a very amazing sort of compelling intellectual grasp of the concept and mistake it for the reality. And, and, and in my opinion, you know, I, I say a lot lately, that, that kind of basic mistaken thing of, of taking concepts to be reality, that's the basic human dysfunction. Mm-hmm. That's what we call maya, or illusion, or original sin, or whatever you want to call it. It's that we human beings go around, we form all these concepts in the head, and then we take the concepts to be reality. And the concepts are just words about reality at best. They might be words about unreality even. But even words about reality are not reality. They're just the words. That's why when a lot of these Advaitic people on Facebook and things get all upset about words and start wrangling and arguing about words and you should use this word and not that word, it's, it's ridiculous. It is ridiculous. <laughs> because words are words. Words just, maybe at best, words point, point Poorly, at best. Yeah. At worst, they point very miserably. <laughs> so why get upset about words? Words don't get it anyway, frankly. Not yeah. ultimately. And if that's true of you know, something that's so unmanifest and, and abstract and subtle as what we're referring to here, I mean, even the color red... You know, the taste, the taste of an apple. Yeah. How could you describe that in words? You can go on and on forever, but it, it, it won't do justice to it. I mean, scientists can kind of analyze, okay, red is a certain wavelength and all, but those are more words. You know, so ultimately it's just a kind of a shared experience. And, uh, huh? Can somebody get an apple? Oh, yeah, throw us an apple or an orange or something. Would you grab that one right there, please, Francis? <clears throat> An orange will do. An orange. Yeah. So if somebody comes up to you and says, hey, uh, describe the taste of an orange, I would go. Yeah, you right give there. me the orange. Right? Yeah. <laughs> I'd, I'd bite into it. And I might bite the skin and say, ooh, it's bitter. Yeah, right. You know, because I'm just getting the outer aspect of the orange and, and the, the, the sweetness is in the inner. Yeah. And I would take it and say, well, that's great. Your mind has said, ooh, I know what this is. What's the mechanics behind all that that's creating an experience? We stop at form. Mm -hmm. The mind is form. It's in words. It's in concepts. So it stops at form rather than looking at how could any of it be Mm -hmm. without exploring the mystery. 
Because the mind wants to stay away from the mystery because there's no mind in the mystery. Yeah. And one of the ways of exploring the mystery is just to bite into the orange. Sure. Yeah. To Without taste the, the orange. label. Yeah. Without the, oh, it's good, oh, it's bad, oh, it's... Oh, I had a better orange ten years ago. Mm-hmm. Oranges suck now. I mean, you know, we do that kind of stuff all the time. Yeah, same with apples. But um, another, well, one thing I find interesting as a as a sort of a tool of understanding is also to, as an you know a non scientific person, but to get a to use a layman's understanding of physics and to analyze down a, a, a sol- apparently solid object to the point where there's no object left. You know, it's just all sort of unmanifest potentiality. And, you know, if you looked closely enough with the right instruments, that's what you'd find here. Nothing of any physical substance. I mean, I, I said this in a recent... Turn that, what you just described, uh-huh. inward on your own thoughts, feelings, and experience. Yeah. And you'll find it's just as empty. Uh-huh. But it'll be a whole different experience turned inward than looking outward as an object because the body-mind is left unchallenged. Exactly. And, you know, the outer world... We, only, we experience it outwardly through our senses, which are designed to focus outwardly. Um, so you want to do a, a 180 yeah. and, and do the exploration inwardly. But you get to that same reality, which exists as the ultimate reality of the orange. You know, and, you, and you are that reality. You're, you're the essence of the orange. And you know, the physical world, if you took all 7 billion people in it and got rid of all the empty space between all the subatomic particles in their bodies, you'd end up with an object the size of a grain of rice. So there's not a whole lot of physicality in the apparent physical world, hmm. you know. And even the, and then that grain of rice, get it down even deeper, and it's just probabilities, strings, whatever. There's, there's really no physical world of any uh, actual solidity. Well, and yet? And yet? Here we are. What a, <laughs> what a mystery, and how exciting is that? Yeah. It's cool. <clears throat> Next life, lifetime, I'm going to pay attention in science class. <laughs> <laughs> um, you mentioned a, a while back that you know Yeshua told you I forget exactly how you said it gave you a vision of you know what the world might be like at this tipping point where everybody awakens can, can you elaborate give us some particulars sure um, the world as we know it is an expression of our collective consciousness so all the Military weapons, all the debris, all the poverty, the hunger, all the well, and, and the destruction that's stuff. taken on the planet. Right. Well, in that vision that he showed me, in that moment, it's all made pure. The earth is also purified because it's just an outpicturing of consciousness. Mm-hmm. And when the consciousness wakes up to its purity. Everything will change. Not just humanity, the world itself will alter. There were colors in the sky that I had never seen. It's, I mean, it was, a, it was a total global event. Not Because it's all happening in an infinite mind, in this infinite field of awareness. So as it changes, it will all change. And that, that was what was so powerful was the rivers ran clean in that instant because it was no longer needed to reflect back the inner disturbance, which is humanity. I guess what I would say to that is, you know, the skeptic comes up in me, um, you know, I can't envision it as being instantaneous. It may be instantaneous in, in the, the big picture of things, but it may take a generation. 
I mean, is the Amazon going to regrow instantaneously? Are the fish populations going to repopulate? Are all the stored nuclear waste going to somehow go poof and disappear? It seems to me it's going to, there'll be a change in the collective mindset, but it may take a while, and even scientific uh, discoveries and breakthroughs and you know, new solar technologies and whatnot to actually implement it on a concrete level. It does take a while for the subtle to percolate into the gross and, and, and become practical. Yes? No? Maybe? Um, you're welcome to see it however you'd like. <laughs> well, there's no precedent in our experience for... Well, in my experience of awakening, mm-hmm. and Francis can pro- it is a... What was there before is gone. Yeah, but let's say you had lost an arm, uh, and you could awaken, and... Well, I think Yeshua's already showed us that he could replace limbs and raise the dead. That didn't take a long time, whether you want to say that's archetypal or whatever. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't put any bet against the infinite power of creation. Yeah. All possibilities means all possibilities. You're right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I would I just simply default to the choice of the highest possible imaginable beneficial choice. Yeah. Uh, I, I'm with you, but I mean, there's the whole sort of 2012 mindset, you know, people were expecting to wake up and find a different world on December 22nd or whatever it was, and I just sort of feel like there are certain laws of nature that are always going to... They have their own way of functioning. Gravity is gravity, and and even though Jesus walked on water, let's say. uh, So was it really gravity, or is that because we all believe it's gravity? Gravity was still working. He was just operating at a level more fundamental than gravity. Therefore, he had command over that law of nature. If you've got this command of of accuracy, ask to see the vision from him yourself. (laughs) Okay, Yeshua, get on the stick here. I mean, because you're speaking with such great authority. So... Have at it. Well, to a certain extent, you know, I'm I can only devil's, share with you I'm what playing I'm devil's advocate. I was going to say, I know Rick, and I think he just likes to be the devil's advocate. <laughs> and, yeah. and of course, and he kind of enjoys problem, that so. role. <laughs> it's a dirty job that somebody's got to do. <laughs> and it's okay. That's fine. Yeah. So that's what I've seen. We'll, 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 when that comes to pass. We'll see. It, it, yeah. Yeah. And again, you know, even if it took a generation for the rainforest to be restored and the nuclear waste to be properly disposed of and the in the oceans to repopulate and, you know, and the temperature to drop again. It does this. It is like, what's a generation, you know? It's the mm-hmm. blink of the eye. Um, and it may be that on the level of the manifest laws of nature, it does take a while for the, the subtle to percolate up and for things to play out. Could be, yes? Stay tuned. Okay. <laughs> you know, I'm more and more happy and perfectly content to uh-huh. just say, I don't know. Whatever. Either way. <laughs> Whatever happens. I'd be happy either way. <laughs> but I, I'm with you in terms of the optimism part. Yeah. Uh, you know, even if it doesn't happen in my lifetime, uh, I'm optimistic. This lifetime. This lifetime. I, yeah, and it doesn't matter what I think, but since I'm interviewing you guys, <laughs> I, I, do, I do think or feel that, um, you know, the subtle is more powerful than the gross, and spiritual awakening is a, is the ultimate in subtle uh, uh, subtle phenomenon, and it's proliferating, and this proliferation can't help but result in a very powerful shift on the grosser, more powerful levels of life, and it's already happening. I think. I mean, changes we're seeing in society, societal attitudes, and other sorts of things are, are shifting. You know, even regular people on the news are saying, "Wow, this is, the things are changing so fast." You know, Republicans are coming out for gay marriage, whatever, you know. And uh, 
so that could accelerate, and who knows how, how greatly it could accelerate, and you know what, how much change we could see within our lifetime. Yeah. Look how much has happened in the past hundred years. Yeah. Well, I've had my own direct physical miraculous healing, mm-hmm. and have seen them such that nothing is beyond possibilities yeah. as far as love goes. Anita Morjani, she was in a coma, 70 pounds, full of lemon-sized tumors, She's checking out, you know, an hour or two to live. She came back from a near-death experience. Tumors went away. She's healthy and happy and strong. So, so what's the difference up? between <laughs> one body and all the cosmically bodies. and the earth is just another body? Yeah, touche. Good point. <laughs> Very good point. You know, there's a concept that uh, is called realized eschatology. Eschatology is the study kind of of the end times. Realized is what you think it means, realized, actually actualized. And there's this theological concept that the second coming of Christ, what we talk about as the second coming of Christ, is actually a realized eschatology. And there was a little group, a sect, that I found very interesting when I was a monk at one point, early in my monastic life. We had a little shaker village that was near Gethsemane called Pleasant Hill. And I went over there and was so struck. I'm a kind of I'm an artist in some ways, and I saw all this beautiful architecture, the beautiful simplicity of the lines, the furniture, and this the religious sect that started in the 1700s in England and then came over to the United States and was around up until the 1940s or 50s in, in, in with some numbers. It was called the Shakers, and a lot of people know about Shaker furniture and so on. And the Shakers. Their name was given them by the world because they shook with emotion in their meetings, so they called them shakers. Could the have world. been Kundalini. Yeah. Well, it was, like, and Christians would say the Holy Spirit. Yeah. You know, so the shakers were shakers to the world because they shook. But their actual official name was the United Society of Believers in Christ's Second Appearing. Mm-hmm. And what the revelation the foundress of the shakers, Mother Anne Lee, got was that one day she woke up to the Christ within her. She had this sense of, I am the Christ. Christ lives in me. Christ lives through me. I am the Christ. So Christ came again in me, of all people. And then she shared that with other people, and they had the realization. Mm -hmm. Christ came again in them. And so this is a realized eschatology. The idea is that the, the second coming of Christ is not some cataclysmic event that happens at the end of time when Jesus touches down on the Mount of Olives, it splits in two, and then Armageddon comes about, and seven years of tribulation and rapture and so on and so forth. That, that, that's a kind of a um, sort of literal sort of interpretation of it. But this concept of the second coming of Christ being a realized eschatology, a realized eschaton, is that when a person, an individual, what we think of as an individual person, wakes up to the reality of the Christ within them, Christ comes again. And then if another person catches that and wakes up to the Christ in them, Christ comes again, again. And that there's a trickle-down effect and that the coming of Christ happens that way. And that it's, it's actually a kind of a corporate, sort of collective wonderful unfolding that never ends, kind of. But, you know, think of the ramifications of that uh, in in the areas of, like, social justice, you know, peace, uh, the environment, uh, financial stuff, questions, all those things. Mm -hmm. 
You know, I know just the, the results of that awakening to the Christ within in my own individual life. The fruit that's come from that, that's beautiful. And I see that in other people. Imagine if everyone in the whole world, little by little, was waking up in this same way. What, what, what a wonderful kind of unfolding that might be, you know. So it's a beautiful yeah. idea. What you both just said has really actually shifted my perspective a lot. You know, what you said about Anita Murjani's healing also. Um, you know, it, it almost seems like devoid of the spirit, devoid of, you know, being or whatever we want to call it, matter is very rigid and intractable and, and things don't change usually. But infused with that, you know, change can, you know, in, in previously unchangeable things can happen quite radically. Yeah. And uh, in health, and uh, on yeah. every level, yeah, I mean, loaves and fishes, you know, I mean, all kinds of things are possible. Yeah, yeah, sure. Because from the infinite point of view, what's the difference between the body or the earth, yeah. or creating a universe or a solar system? Yeah, I mean, I, I can't imagine God breaks a sweat because one's harder than the other. And if physicality is really as non-physical as I was just saying ten minutes it's ago, it's consciousness. Yeah. it's thought. It's just a, all of God, possible so probabilities appearing to manifest as, as something solid. You know, poof, the, the, the solidity could just take a new form. Sure. Well, really, collective consciousness and humanity has a threshold that says things beyond this limit aren't possible. Mm. So they don't express. A right. hundred years ago, it was impossible to think you could talk to someone on the other side of the planet. Mm -hmm. Now we're all carrying around a cell phone. Yeah. I mean, if you look within what is the nature of how consciousness, the symbols in the world of how that is expressing back to its unified nature, meaning there is no separation, if you look on the timeline, it's happening incredibly quickly. Just look at Facebook. Hmm. It went from nothing to a billion, to billion people in like a year and a half or something. And if you look on there, you're seeing their thoughts. Mm -hmm. There's collective consciousness, and of course the internet is really the mind of God. I mean, can you imagine a hundred years ago somebody <laughs> saying, well, I could just ask a question and the answer would appear? Yeah. Sounds like magic. Well, so, yeah, I wouldn't understand not always that. the right answer, though, folks. Yeah. That <laughs> <laughs> <It> appears. <laughs> yeah. True. But my, my point is, the, the growth is quickly outpacing our human oh, lim yeah, limitations, sure, sure. which are trying to tamp it down. Right. Well, I read something recently where it said, you know, the, uh, just exponentially the, the development of technology and so on is more in the last hundred years than it's been for like a thousand years previous to that. Yeah. That, the, that the speed of it has speeded up so fast that nobody a hundred years ago could have ever in their wildest dreams imagined. It would be like a Confederate Yankee in King Arthur's court or something. Yeah. You know, this person from the future going back to the past and, and having the ability to do all these things, and it just amazes everyone, you know? So if it's speeded up that much in the last hundred years, how much may it speed up in the next hundred years, you know? It's anybody's guess, isn't it? So if you look at all of those things, all of them are the shortening of time. And we were talking of the end of times mm -hmm. when the consciousness is reunified as one mm -hmm. and you can communicate with any being, non-locally, whatever. There won't be any need for time. I mean, time itself will. So that's what's happening. All these things represent 
time being compressed and compressed and compressed and compressed mm -hmm. to the end of time. When that happens, you know, who knows? And when Christ comes again in you, you are eternal. That's the end of time yeah. for you. You know, when part of what happens when one wakes up, at least for me, was the end of time. Like time no longer. I mean, time you can still, of course, there's still time on a relative level. You can use time. I got here on time to do this retreat. I'll leave at a certain time and get back to Ohio at a certain time. And it's probably helpful on a, just a practical level to know so that I don't miss my plane and so on and so forth. <laughs> so that's like uh, Eckhart Tolle calls it clock time. Mm. You know, and yet, uh, on, on the most absolute kind of real level in my own direct experience, right here and right now, there is no time. You know? So when Christ comes again, when you wake up to this consciousness, when the consciousness within you comes to know itself, it's the end of time. It's the end of the world. Yes. You know what Christians talk about? The end of the world. Right. The end times and all that. Yeah. yeah, and all those are true. Upon awakening, all those all those phrases actually make a lot of sense, don't they? So there's something even in very literalized fundamentalist Christianity. There there are symbols, there are myths in a certain way. There are archetypes that are pointing. They're pointers to this reality. And you know, in, in every single religion, these these exist. In Christianity, it's in one form with a certain set of words that, that are used. In Hinduism, it's another form with another set of words. But the reality, as I say, it's not the words. The words are simply pointing. And isn't it amazing how they, they all point to the same... When you actually have a living experience of the reality, you come to realize that. Well, it's the same reality. I could pick up a Upanishad and read it. Somebody sent me, a Vipassan teacher sent me a Dzogchen text. And he said it was like one of the most kind of difficult Dzogchen. And I picked it up and I like understood every word. It's like, because the reality that I've awoken, that I've awakened to is the same reality that these Dzogchen sages way back when uh, woke up to. So of course we're speaking the same language, which is the language of love. It's not a language of words. And love's timeless. Yeah. Hmm. Time is a concept to measure eternity, it was once said. <laughs> well, it's going to come in the realization, the second coming of Christ, whatever you want to call it, within each being, and that will be the end of time. Right. We as body minds, thinking time is so real, thought the end of times would be apocalyptic and bad. Mm -hmm. It will be the most joyous celebration ever. Yeah. Was for me. Yeah. <laughs> and it may not be the end of time as a practical tool for catching planes and stuff. No, you fine. still wear a watch and all, but it'll be sort of a, a kind of a dawning of the, of the timeless in collective consciousness. Yeah. Yeah. Say. yeah. yeah. Right. There's lots of concepts that are useful. Mm -hmm. You know, the concept of, 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 of the United States and Canada is useful. You know, but if you get in a plane and fly over the border, you're not going to see the United States and Canada. You're not going to see a line saying U.S., Canada, you know. But it's a concept that we use that's helpful, helps us know where to send our tax money, you know, so they can make good roads and stuff like that. It's fine. But the problem is we just take it so literally and so seriously. And we think that's reality. Again, we're, it's the basic human dysfunction. We're taking a bunch of concepts and we're thinking the concepts are real. And they're real as concepts, but they're not reality with a capital R. But what if the reality we think we are experiencing 
is an expression of the reality that is held in collective human consciousness. And when that reality within changes, the reality it must reflect Surely. outside differently. Surely. I would say that that's the only way it's going to change outside. If, you know, oh, if sure. it changes in the kind of collective consciousness within. Yeah, peace will come one enlightenment, one awakening at a time. Mm -hmm. Not through negotiations of any governments or family reunions burying the hatchet. Yeah. It will come through individual awakening. I was uh, participating in these, what we call the World Peace Project in the TM movement back in the 70s, and I, I spent three months in Iran. And uh, we were, you know, had a group of a couple hundred guys doing long meditation programs, hours and hours a day, in the middle of Tehran. And uh, there were similar groups in um, Israel, South Africa, which was going through the apartheid struggles, and Central America, where Nicaragua was having its revolution and all that. And uh, there, you know, and scientists who admittedly had a sort of a bias in terms of using this as a PR tool, but nonetheless looked at the whole thing quite carefully and all sorts of societal trends and crime rates and death rates from wars and all that stuff, and really found a very statistically significant correlation between the arrival of these groups in these areas and their, their stay there and then their departure again. You know, big fluctuations in, in death rates in, in due to war and crime rates and, and other kinds of measures, even economic measures. We had a group of 8,000 at one point for uh, several weeks in the winter of, I don't know, 1980 or something. And there were big changes in society that could be measured during that period. Hmm. So, you know, the attempt was to demonstrate that um, just a, a change in, in consciousness in enough people and, and the sort of the super radiance effect of all those people in there in, together as a group as opposed to scattered all over the place could ripple out through, you know, through the instrumentality of the underlying field of consciousness and create an enlightenment in the entire society, entire culture that could be measurable. And that's notwithstanding the power of God. I believe it's by virtue of the power of God. Sure, <laughs> but my, my point is, yeah. all of that on the level of form is infinitely small compared to the absolute. Right. And that power is... I mean, I've seen it's it. absolute. Yeah. <laughs> and so you're saying? Uh, I'm saying that that's where the change will come as we wake up not to bodies, mm -hmm. but to that one self. Yeah. Well, that's basically what these people were experiencing. They were in meditation waking up to that one self to whatever degree of clarity and, you know, and not thinking about the crime rate or anything else, but, right, right. but by virtue of that awakening that was taking place. And believe me, being in a group of 8,000 people meditating together, sure. it was palpable, it was thick, uh, that, you know, there was an effect. Sure. Well, when I was a monk... Thank we, you, it may have contributed to my awakening. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> <may> yeah. Have. <laughs> when I was a monk, uh, every day we would have a period of like prayerful meditation in the very, very early morning, so the whole community would be there. And even that, you know, you're talking, we were talking in, in, in Montreal, it's like maybe 30, 40 people, and yet often there would be a sense of, of presence, of that there was a more kind of concentrated sense of it. When Wherever we're, we're, two or three are gathered? Yes, yeah. yes, and I, I think there is a reality there that, you know, 8,000 people it must have been really kind of incredible. But imagine a whole planet yeah. of that. You know, Eckhart Tolle has this book called The New Earth, right, and, and a lot of what he's saying in that book is, is sort of that vision, and, and that's a, the Christian vision from the book of Revelation, mm -hmm. 
there's a new heaven and a new earth. Mm. But this, this kind of new heaven and new earth won't necessarily come about by God just waving a magic wand over it, but it, it's a kind of, it's a kind of um, actualization of God present in the earth itself, in, in all those things, those forms, you know, that they somehow actualize, they, it's consciousness again becoming aware of itself within all that, and the transformative effect of that is like infinite. And that's, I think, that evolutionary enlightenment, it's, it's, it's just amazing that, you know, there's no end to it, I think is what they're saying in that, in that, in that field of thought, that, you know, there's no end to it, and that seems to be what the absolute, for lack of a better word, enjoys doing. Mm-hmm. This play, this lila, this dance that's so creative and so beautiful and so wonderful to behold, and it's amazing. Mm. Would you like to add anything? Infinitude <laughs> and just wonder. Mm. I'm not as familiar with you and your work as I am with Francis. Is, um, do you want to talk a little bit more about what you do with people and for people? And, you know, I mean, what kind of, if, if someone were to get in touch with you, what would they do? Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, they can go to my website, onewhowakes.org. Mm-hmm information's on there. I do teachings. One of the favorite things I do, mm-hmm. which Yeshua did with me in my own awakening, I asked, how can I speed up my awakening? Mm-hmm. He said, we'll use movies. Mm-hmm. And I said, really? Movies? So, he God, would... Jesus t- likes movies. He's like me. Well, but, and he teased me because he said, you know, recognize I had a stick in the dirt when I was walking the planet, but now we have the ability to go into a movie theater and expose our consciousness to things that we probably never would see. Mm -hmm. So by watching the movies, it caused all of my egoic judgments and desires and preferences and all that stuff to come out of the buried subconscious up into my awareness where I could, to use some Christian parlance, I could forgive them, I could let them go. You know, I could be with them and see, oh my gosh, I see that I'm holding these judgments and it's not really about the judgments, it's about me wanting to be the one holding judgments. So you started watching a bunch of movies? We watched over 100 movies together. Who's so we? Me and Jesus. Oh. oh. So we, we Does would, he like he, popcorn? Um, no, his non-physical form dogs. doesn't. So he would tell me to pause, and he would, we would look at what was going on in my instead own being. So you sort of like analyze what you had just seen in the movie yeah. and discuss it or whatever? Sure. So now I extend those same teachings by showing waking up to the movies. Which is a lot of fun. Did you send me? I have a file on my desktop that says "Waking Up to the Movies," and it must be. That may be it. I don't. I guess you didn't say it. I don't know where it came Maybe from. Maybe you Chris, sent it to I don't me. know. Um, so, and then I do teachings around much of the Christ consciousness stuff. Uh-huh. I went through the Course in Miracles, the Way of Mastery, Course of Love, all that stuff. But the teachings that Jesus gave me as very simple and practical practices, mm-hmm. I extend all those. And then whatever else kind of comes. So back to the movies for a minute. I mean, did, did you watch... I mean, were you watching just, like, just uplifting movies? Are you watching slasher movies? Or what kind of movies? Oh, <laughs> the whole spectrum. I mean, we Horn? watched... We watched... Well, I, I'd had plenty of that already. <laughs> so um, we watched horror movies uh-huh. because I needed to see within my own being where fear resided. Huh. Where was it within my consciousness I was unwilling to look? Mm-hmm. Because of course, love allows all things. Goes, you know, it's letting it all happen. 
So we, we watched everything. I mean, the whole spectrum, but from metaphysical teaching movies, kind of like The Matrix. Mm-hmm. Um, do, we just did one last night, Intouchables, which is a beautiful symbol about meeting people as equals rather than seeing disability as something that makes someone less than someone else. Mm-hmm. So there were all kinds of beautiful teachings in there. Mm-hmm. So now people come, we have, have popcorn, I show Waking Up to the Movies. Hmm. That sounds like fun. Um, I've often thought that, you know, when you get a movie like Close Encounters or Star Wars or, uh, you know, some of these beautiful, real, or The Matrix, or these interesting movies that have come out, they're not just the brainchild of Steven Spielberg or some, or George Lucas, they're, the Steel, Spielberg or Lucas are like channels for some higher, bigger intelligence that wants to, uh, you know, infuse a particular concept into the mass consciousness. Would Jesus agree with that? Of course. I think <laughs> love's been trying to wake us up very gently for quite some time. Mm. And using movies, songs. I mean, if you start to listen to songs, and if you'll turn the love songs instead of this way, and you'll turn it this way, right. they start to speak to you in a very deeper level. Mm-hmm. So the message, you know, when you wake up, it's everywhere. It's like, oh my God, how could I have not seen it? It's on every billboard, it's on the radio, it's on the movies. Um, so he just helped calibrate my consciousness mm-hmm. by watching those movies to kind of the Christ mind or the that infinite absolute kind of view. Speaking of messages that are trying to be you know conveyed to us, do you have any opinion about crop circles? Um, well, I don't know. Just ask Francis a question and I'll go find out. Okay. Uh, <laughs> so. <laughs> And the reason, well, I'll just I'll just riff for a minute while I, um, well, he finds out. <laughs> <laughs> the reason I asked the question is that about I don't know thirty years ago I came across a coffee table book about UFOs and I just had this intuitive aha that that's part of the mix. And I know it you know it seems ogre it seems new agey, but it just sort of felt like there's actually you know higher beings or you know, alien races or whatever that may be more advanced than us that actually are interested in our survival, if not our blossoming as a planet, and that they are part of the whole scene of, of what's going on, you know? So did you find anything out? Yeah, uh, go listen to Bashar on Crop Circle. People have been telling me to interview this guy, Bashar. There you go. Okay. Bashan? Did you know about? You must have known about him already. You didn't just. You weren't just told about him in the last thirty seconds. Um, he, he, he's come across the radar before. But uh-huh. Okay. Yeah. Consciousness is one. It's infinitely vast, and as Jesus said, "Knock, and it will be shown to you." Mm-hmm. We're so rooted in this idea that we have separate minds that we're oftentimes not open. Mm-hmm. I mean, all channeling is is open to that other consciousness. Nothing is hidden behind the veil. Nothing is hidden. Well, along the same lines, um, in, in terms of this vision of uh, a much brighter age dawning, um, does that brighter does that vision include um, membership in a much larger brotherhood of uh, civilizations beyond our own planet? Yes. Mm-hmm. As, and you've kind of gone into the details of that somewhat, and you uh, no other than knowing that as we wake up into our one. All else that is one will be known. Mm-hmm. But again, it, it's not so much on the level of form. It's on the level of formlessness. We're still so... It's kind of like 
run to the other side of the bridge and look at it from God's point of view rather than continuing to be biased to form. Look at it just from consciousness. Mm-hmm. Right, from the perspective of consciousness. And, and the implication of that is, with regard to this point? Um, you'll see a very different... You'll see a, a world from the consciousness side mm-hmm. that doesn't have limitations, lack, barrier, separateness, alien... It, it's one unified whole mind, consciousness. And the universe is my family. Correct. Mm-hmm. And that's all known. The higher you move in that kind of metaphorical building of consciousness. Mm-hmm. I could keep coming up with questions. and They keep percolating. <laughs> it never stops. Francis, would you like to say anything? <laughs> not this moment. I, I would. It, it some of that stuff can get very scintillating and get yeah, lots of interest. Yeah, it can be a mind candy. Just wake up. Yeah, yeah. That, yeah, that's yeah. Thing. I'd say that. Wake, wake up. up. <laughs> wake up, everybody. Wake up. You know, it, it all is going to be revealed. Mm-hmm. Just wake up first. Yeah. And if anything, if that adds an incentive to drop all your concepts and beliefs and self-identification of having your own one separate mind and to open to the whole, then maybe that's more incentive to drop your self-identification or, you know, mm-hmm. get on about waking up. I asked um, John Mark uh, about what people would do if he were to get in touch, they were to get in touch with him. How about you, Francis? Well, I, I have a website now that's very fresh and new. <laughs> it's only been up a couple of weeks. It's called www.findinggraceatthecenter.com. All lowercase, all run together. Finding Grace at the Center. Uh, I'm very active on Facebook. So if you look up Francis Bennett, there's several Francis Bennetts, but I, I look like this. <laughs> if you look up uh, Francis Bennett on Facebook, and you'll see my little picture. And then you just click on that, and I take all friend requests, uh, and so I'm using Facebook as a very different, I've just recently been informed that it's a social media, it's a public <laughs> forum, and uh, that, uh, that it's used in a certain way, and I kind of probably don't use it in the way it was designed to be used. I've never posted anything about where I went to dinner or vacation, I've never posted a picture of a cute kitten as far as I remember. <laughs> or an angry uh, cat. Or an angry cat. Or, or a video of one, <laughs> but uh, but I basically just post spiritual posts, uh, you know, four, five, six times a day. Uh, what, they just come to me, and, and this kind of stuff just seems to be coming to me a lot for some reason. And so when it does, I, I either, if I'm on an iPhone, I can post it, or if I'm near my computer, and if I'm not, I just kind of write it down, stick it in my pocket, and post it later. Mm-hmm. Uh, I do a lot of... Um, kind of uh, interaction and engagement with people through the Facebook. And I do Skyping. If you come to my website, that Finding Grace at the Center website, uh, there's a one page that tells you how you can kind of Skype with me. I have a PayPal. People can pay through that. Or I also do Skyping for free for those who can't afford anything. I don't ever want this to be something that uh, is about money. It's not really about money for me. Um, I just have a book that just came out. Uh, yesterday, officially, and it's called I Am That I Am. Uh, It's just a book kind of that came out of my own awakening. Uh, I had a spiritual director at the time who encouraged me to journal about it. I really had no intention of writing a book, frankly, but I journaled and gave him 
pieces of the journal to read, and after about a year or so, he said, you know, I think there's a book here. And so uh, we kind of organized it together as a book. I presented it to a publisher, Non-Duality Press, and they wanted to publish it. So here it is. So all of those things are ways to kind of uh, get in touch with my message, what I'm trying to share with people. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, the Buddha speaks of right livelihood. And I, I just want to mention that you do have a day job. Since you got out of the monastery, you needed to support yourself. And <clears throat> I would like to... I, I'm happy to be instrumental in helping you transition from that day job to being able to do what you love best and what the world needs dearly as a full-time thing. So, you know, if people want to invite you to come and do a retreat someplace, and you've already been invited to several as a result of my first interview with you, you've been up to Alaska and <laughs> places. Yeah, uh, you North know, Carolina. Reach out to Francis, and he'll be happy to travel someplace. And, um, Me oh, too. And you too. Yeah. Okay. Because I don't have a day job. Yeah, <laughs> I love for a living. Yeah, and and me too, actually. Although I don't quite There's feel like I'm in the same league as these guys. <laughs> yeah. The oldest profession. I love for a living, <laughs> and live to do nothing but love. Yeah, mm. I'm sorry. I shouldn't make fun of that. Oh, it's, it's cool. Good. Thanks for joining yeah. me. I was just saying that uh, you know I also have a day job, and I'd love to be doing Buddha at the gas pump full time. I I don't feel like. My role is quite the same as yours, and I don't. In fact, I wouldn't have taught a retreat by myself, even though I taught a hundred of them back in the old days. But I was a parrot, you know. And, and these days, I feel like it's got to come from, uh, you know, genuine direct experience. And you know, I feel my experience needs maybe it's a, a self-doubt, but I feel it needs further maturation before I would be confident or qualified to sit up in front of a group and lead a retreat and really be of value to people. But I, was, I really enjoyed doing this one as your sidekick. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, thanks, Robin. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I thought you were the Lone Ranger. <laughs> um, I think maybe you're Batman and I'm Robin. Oh. <laughs> so, you know, maybe we'll have You are more. Batman. Batgap. Batman. <laughs> yeah, it's true. There you go. <laughs> so maybe we'll have some more such opportunities. Yeah, I hope so. We um, got invited somewhere. We did. So James invited us to... That's true. We'll go, we might go to Virginia Beach in the fall and do, do one at the Edgar Casey Foundation. Yes. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. So what I'll do, as I always do, is I'll have a, a, a blog post. Batgap.com is a blog. And uh, there'll be a blog post specific to this interview, and it'll have a little bio of both of you with links to your website, books, your book. Uh, have you read the book? No. Okay. And, uh, but anything you want me to put there. And for those of you who happen to be listening to this while you're commuting or something, you don't have to pull over the car and write down what these guys just said in terms of their website because it'll be there and, and you can just follow the links. Um, also there you will find uh, an archive of all the interviews that have been done so far, about 170-something to date. And uh, the, there's a tab where you can sign up to be notified by email each time a new one is posted. Um, there's a chat group that uh, springs up around each interview that gets usually several hundred uh, substantive posts um, with each interview. There's a donate button, which I rely upon in order to continue to do all this. Um, so feel free to click that if you're so inclined. And if you don't like PayPal and don't want to mess with that, there's a tab which explains what my address is in case you want to send a good old-fashioned check or something. 
Um, and I, someone was discussing this with me over the weekend. They said, why don't you charge like 20 bucks a month the way Eckhart Tolle does and, and you know, you could you know, retire now. And I thought, you know, maybe, but I'm not Eckhart Tolle, number one. don't have that kind of audience. Number two, I'd sort of like for this always to be free if possible, and for people to just donate on a voluntary basis if they feel like it. I think that would be more fair to the people I interview because they would have a larger audience than if there were some restriction. Um, theoretically, I could do like a 15-minute you know, teaser and then you have to pay to watch the rest, but I don't know, those, those things seem gimmicky. So uh, for the time being and hopefully um, ongoing, it'll be free and open to anyone who watches, who wishes to watch, but... I do rely on the support, and that's a much longer spiel than I usually give on this point. Um, so that's about it. Um, thank you both very much. It's really been a joy doing this with you and meeting you, John Mark. I hadn't met you uh, at all yet, and it's really fun to do them in person over rather than Skype all yeah. the time. Um, and so thanks to those who've been listening or watching, and we'll see you next week. <laughs>